1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From Rembrandt to Rothko and Mozart to Wagner, art and music have the capacity to give us a feeling of the sublime and transcendent wonder. Yet in contemporary culture, the sublime is rare and for the most part, not even desired. So what really is the sublime and where can we find it in the 21st century? Joining us to debate Trash, Trends, and the Transcendent are thought-provoking author Olivia Fain, journalist and social critic Mina Salami, radical biologist Rupert Sheldrake, and award-winning novelist Jana Kavena. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Mark Salter.
2: From Rembrandt to Rothko, from Mozart to Wagner, art and music have always had this amazing capacity to reach to the sublime, uh, the subliminal, the transcendent. But in contemporary culture, all these things seem mysteriously absent. I mean, you know, the WAP video or the art of Takashi Murakami aren't exactly like profound and deep and up there. There's something, someone sort of missing somehow. Is the sublime, whatever that is, an attempt to reach the unreachable? And why is it so rare in modern culture? Or perhaps it was just an illusion, a delusion even, that historically that was what sublime and art were, to, were fused together. I mean, do we really need to do something about this and think of perhaps a new way of approaching art in the modern world that reconnects us with the idea of the sublime, the transcendent? Is there some way around this? to our speakers. On my extreme left, we have Olivia Fain, and Olivia, the writer of Why Sex Doesn't Matter, and uh, another book, The Rupture, An Exploration of Knowledge, and what's it called, Knowledge of the Sublime. That was something I wasn't taught to learn off by heart. You've written many articles for The Times, The Guardian, The Daily Mail, I understand. Joanna Venner on my, my close left, is a multi-award-winning writer, a novelist. Uh, perhaps she's best known for her most recent book, Z, which I, I recommend. And uh, she's written very, very widely for a whole range of publications, including uh, The New Yorker, The Huffington Post, The LRB, I don't review of your books, The Guardian, The Observer, and um, New York Times. On my right, I have Mina Salami, who is a, a Nigerian Finnish journalist, feminist and author. She's written uh, quite a few books herself, including Sensuous Knowledge, a black feminist approach for everyone, and an interestingly titled The Power Book, What Is It? Who has it and why? That's a key public figure. She's spoken at over 200 universities and cultural events across five continents. So she's busy. And finally, on my far left, we have a a legend of parapsychology research, the great Rupert Sheldock, who's very, very well known for a a very wide range of things and perhaps most controversially for his theory of morphic resonance. I think is a, a very interesting concept that set the scientific community thinking. So here we have Four people looking at a very different angle on this fascinating idea of the transcendent. So, I'd like to ask all of them in the usual fashion to sum up exactly what they're going to say in three piffy minutes. To start with you, Olivia, I want all four of you to answer this simple question. What is the sublime, and has contemporary culture abandoned it? Olivia.
0: Well, what I love most about the sublime is its violence. Every preconception you've ever had, history, culture, philosophy, religion, just swept away uh, like that. And in fact, there's a very wonderful quote um, by William Blake in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And he says, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is. For he is closed down on himself, so that all he can see is through the narrow chinks of his cavern. Now what the sublime does is he zaps us all out of our caverns and propels us into the light. And uh, in fact, the little book I wrote uh, is called The Rupture. And that's exactly what it does, and that's why I I love it. Now, of course, nowadays we use the phrase sublime in, 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 hey, what a a sublime hat or a sublime kitchen, which says more about, I hear, about our culture than about the sublime. We revere the sublime um, because of its history. Its root was sublimis, meaning simply high or elevated. But what the, the people who really made it famous were Burke and Kant, and what they talk about is the sublime's unbounded nature, and they compare that to the beautiful, which is bounded, which is all about taste and whatever, but what interests them is the sublime, in the sublime, uh, is its infinite uh, quality. But also, it's it's terror, and the words they use, I mean, Burke talks about terror, astonishment, and and Kant about uh, volcanoes and hurricanes and everything. And in fact, uh, Kant's perfect day is to be caught in a terribly violent storm where you practically lose your life, and then you reach home. That's a kind of perfect ideal. It's a sublime day, as, as we might say. Now, in fact, Kant gives art the thumbs down. He thinks that art's all about saying, oh, have you seen the exhibition of such and such an artist or whatever? Uh, He thinks it's all about society and showing off, but what he loves is, is, is nature.
2: Johanna, over to you, okay, well, you well, me, I'm be Olivia. That, um, I, 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 we've got lots to talk about this evening, okay. so um, please.
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with lots of everything that Olivia's just said. And, um, and yes, yeah, so as, as Olivia mentioned, there's this kind of really ancient history to it. And an interesting facet of that is Longinus, who's a sort of third century Roman, um, is the first person attributed to sort of coin this term. And he's, got, he's basically writing about art that I like. And he calls it the sublime, so it's kind of very much about taste in art, you know, I like this art, this art's rubbish. So it's kind of that funny idea of taste making that, you know, this is elevated because me and my mates kind of enjoy it. So it's a huge kind of cultural aspect, but then it goes into, as Olivia said, it gets picked up, gets translated, this work in the 17th century. And by the 18th century, it's so fashionable that, you know, you get sort of the usual culprit sniggering in the back, people like Swift. Um, and Pope start talking about tremendous Longinus and sort of making jokes about him. <laughs> and then you get, you know, the sort of Burkean idea of terror or, but also the thing I really like about the Longinus um, essay is it's all about incompleteness, that the really interesting stuff in life is unfathomable. You can't quite get to it. And I think that's so interesting. It's such an interesting early idea- expression of what we actually get in lots of arts, talking about art. You get Duchamp doing that in the early 20th century. He says that really, The artwork is incomplete and it's completed by the audience because the artist never knows enough to say, I've totally finished. And you have that, you know, in loads and loads of art, that idea of a sort of dialogue with the audience. Now with the internet, you could say, people think it's the anti-sublime, but actually it's this massive, as David Bowie said actually in the late 90s, this huge kind of incomplete work that everyone kind of participates in. So I think that's a part of it. I've got one other thing to say, is that right? Um, Also, I think in terms of do we, have we lost the sublime? Well, I'd say in terms of this feeling of incompleteness, unknowability, do we all still feel this sense of immensity, you know, ourselves as mortals, the vastness of space, you know, the enormity of implacable mountains and nature. You know, even though there are now kind of cliches of the sublime, and you know, you can go and stand on sublime point and see the supposedly sublime view. I think these fundamental feelings are still absolutely intrinsic, not only to art, but also science, life, you know, our general sort of day-to-day experience. So I'd say it's actually a really you know, contemporary experience because it continues throughout time, and whether we call it the sublime or not, it's sort of present. Thank you. Is that all right? It is. Miller.
4: Okay, uh, what is the sublime? Um, I guess the way that I see it is that it's about this kind of human desire to be elevated into some dimension of higher consciousness, and um, typically the problem with the sublime, I guess I'm a little bit more critical of it, is um, that it has been defined by such a small group of people, um, typically people of uh, 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 the upper classes, men, and it has a Eurocentric kind of definition. Um, sometimes these people have have um, contributed very positively to the definition of the sublime. So Olivier was speaking about Kant, for instance, and I can't remember the name of the book now where he. He, he distinguishes between um, the sublime and the beautiful, but you know he, he saw the sublime as something connected to the masculine, um, and the beautiful as connected to the feminine and to women. So there's like creating this kind of exclusion of women from the sublime. Um, the, the pursuit of the sublime has also been um, very classed. Uh, you know, so some of the examples that you mentioned, uh, Mozart, Wagner, you know, these are. These are definitions of the sublime, which have, uh, you know, in which there's a class discrimination, and also the way that it has been a, a, a assigned to the arts world, um, and particularly, I guess, we start to think of or when we hear this, the, the sublime in arts, we think of like 19th century artists. Um, which is a period in which women artists are, are very much excluded. Once again, I recently read a, a, a book, which I'll, I'll plug, because I thought it was so brilliant, by uh, uh, an author called Jennifer Higgy. It's called uh, The Mirror and the Palette. Um, and it's all about women artists in the 19th century and beyond. Um, but, you know, it's really interesting to think of who was excluded from, from the definition of what the sublime is. Um, as I was thinking through this question, I thought about uh, the kind of the etymological roots of the sublime and how that's—it's very related to, to the term subliminal—and um, that kind of maybe helps to respond to the latter part of the question, where I think. People are maybe more interested in the subliminal aspect of the sublime today. Um, so, so I don't think that contemporary culture has rejected it, but because it's history of exclusion, I think it's just shifted and what we find Uh, today is probably a search for the sublime in in different places um, most especially I think in nature so there's a lot of uh, there's a sort of desire to to elevate and find higher dimensions through connecting with the land and you know there's a lot of that kind of discourse going on which I think is very much about the sublime but also the subliminal thank you
5: Rupert well I agree about nature as being the constant source of uh, inspiration it wasn't historically or people just find nature frightening. I mean, mountains, torrents, and so on. It became fashionable in the romantic period. Um, But today, uh, nature is one of the great sources of uh, sublime experience or transcendent experience for many people. There are also experiences that are more inner experiences, like through psychedelics. Many people who take psychedelics have experiences of going way beyond their normal state of consciousness into a state which seems more beautiful um, more interesting more fascinating more vivid um, and uh, opening a door to something greater than themselves but that's um, a personal experience and if we look at the history of different human cultures we see that they've actually collectively tried to represent the sublime and create the experience of it for the whole culture in egypt They did it through those great buildings, the pyramids and the temples. Uh, In India, the great temples of India, the wonderful Buddhist temples in Thailand and in um, other parts of Asia, wonderful mosques and tombs uh, in the Islamic world, and in the Christian world, the great cathedrals, the great temples we have. People have also tried to do it through music. Uh, through sacred chant, particularly, and through uplifting music, like in the Christian tradition, things like Bach's B Minor Mass and his cantatas, and through sacred song. And actually, here we are in a secular modern Britain, but every day in our land, the perpetual choirs are singing in all our great cathedrals. There are incredibly well-trained choirs singing every evening choral evensong in incredibly beautiful buildings. So it's not if it's gone away. It's still here, what we've inherited from the past in in our own culture here in in Europe. Um, It's just that most people don't know about it or don't care about it or are detached from it. But if you're interested, there's a website called choralevensong.org where you can find out what they're singing and even hear it streaming. So what I'm saying really is that there's these attempts culturally to Reach out to the sublime and create environments where you can experience it, like great cathedrals and temples and mosques and and uh, the Taj Mahal and so on. Are very much part of the way our cultures were in the past. Today, there's not much effort. Collective effort goes into that. It goes more into entertainment, uh, you know, building banks uh, and so on, airports and whatnot, shopping malls. So. Uh, But it hasn't gone away, and we still have the heritage of the past, thank goodness. Um, And maybe we could exceed it in the future. But for now, um, I think it's as well to remember what we already have. Indeed, and what we may be losing. So, this it, this transcendent, is something I
2: want to look at and look at the reason, perhaps, for its decline. But before we go through that, I'd just like to think a bit more about what we actually mean by the transcendent. We've heard fear, horror, nature, art, psychedelic experience, and Rupert has um, referred to in many ways, and on one occasion even advertised, this idea of God. Now, yeah, that's one word that we haven't heard so far, nor have you heard the word or, awe, a W-E-O, which I think is a fascinating word. So, could you give us a robust definition of the sublime and the transcendent, beyond perhaps what you've already said?
5: Well. I can't give a robust definition, but I can say something about what, how I understand it, which I think is being recognizing that there's conscious forces, beings, experiences greater than our own, and that through these experiences of the transcendent sublime, we become aware of the fact we're part of something much greater than ourselves. And it can be terrifying because it can seem as if our ego or our self will be annihilated and the, the poet, who I think expresses this best, is Rilke, the German poet, who, um, who says, beauty is that terror we're only just able to bear. And that There's something about beauty which is terrifying. And I've noticed this. You know, if you're in an amazing place, you've been invited to drinks with somebody who's got an incredible house with an amazing view. There's cocktails, and there's the terrace and stuff. And you all look at the sunset for about 30 seconds, And then somebody says, well, this reminds me of something I saw in Bali last year. And somebody says, oh, yeah, well, I saw a scene a bit like some amazing sunset. And you're immediately somewhere else. Uh, Because it's too much to bear, it it threatens to overwhelm us. And so I think there's a way in which we're frightened by it as well. But for many people, when they have experiences of the transcendent through mystical experiences, it's the most important experience or experiences of their lives. People have had near-death experiences lasting about two minutes uh, when they feel themselves going out of their body into another realm of joy, peace, bliss. And, w- and when they come back, they're usually rather disappointed that it's only a near-death experience. Um, but um, uh, when they've had these experiences, people who've had them, many of them say it's completely changed their life. They now have a much greater sense of meaning, they've lost the fear of death, and so on. Um, so they change people, these experiences, in a way that ordinary entertainment doesn't. Um, because they're transformative, I think it's, that's one reason they're so frightening.
2: Thank you. So can I ask, then, perhaps, the, the rest of the panel, their views, as big as you will, about what are the forces at work that have actually sort of started to banish this from our world?
0: Well, I would say, actually, really? uh, science uh, has. I mean, one of the expressions I completely hate is God of the gaps, which basically said all that sort of um, awe, that religious impulse that our sort of ancestors had, well, it was because they didn't um, think scientifically, and science has explained lightning and thunder, and therefore they don't need God to say there's Zeus and the thunderbolts and the Jupiter and all the rest of it. And uh, what upsets me about this is that uh, it imagines that um, our ancestors had our minds, our sort of right and left hand brains, we're all analytical, we're over-educated. And there was some kind of um, Stone Age classroom where they said, Oh, God, don't, we don't know what water, water's made of. Um, put that in the, in the column under God again. Could you do that, please? Yes, yes, boys and girls. Because the truth is, it wasn't like that. People didn't think like that. They thought like this. And what's interesting is that 200,000 years ago, um, men and women had the same size brains as us. They were like us. They didn't have our education. But they were like us. And they would have looked at a lake or a sea or whatever, and they would have thought, wow. And this is the awe that you mentioned. They would have thought, wow. And we've lost sight of that, basically, uh, because of science. And what's interesting, I think, is that their response, they responded to nature in a way. They did that firsthand. And we've just lost the, the art if it's an art, I don't think it is an art, I think it's a natural human thing actually, but we've lost that because we live in, in cities All and right. everything like that.
2: So we've, we've lost it, uh, Minna, well, what's your take on that?
4: Yeah, no, I really agree with what Olivia's saying, and I think the transcendent is, um, it's, it's in so far that it's an experience that, um, that can be like it kind of shifts your perspectives towards something progressive, towards something better and beautiful. You know, it's such an important experience that human beings can have. Um, and yet, the way that we talk about it, like, I think we need so much more critical thinking around it, which is part of what you're saying, like, you know, going back to our ancestors. And the thing with transcendence is that the way that we, we typically approach it is, um, is uh, Coming to science eventually, um, but let me see if I can, if I can put this in a, in a more practical way. Um, so it goes back to this kind of platonic idea um, of there being a better existence somewhere in a different plane than ours. So the transcendent is, is very much seen as outside of this world. Um, and I think that that's a big problem because what that creates then is this issue of not being able to connect with nature directly so instead and this is again it's you know it's this small group of men who typically then have like theorized around the transcendent stemming from the platonic idea of it existing somewhere else and made it something so sort of distant and abstract and esoteric that it's almost, you know, it's intangible for most people when it's actually something that we really need because it can enrich our, our lives individually and collectively. Um, and so in, there's a, in, in the feminist tradition, uh, not necessarily all feminism, but I think that this notion of rapture maybe, it can help to be generative when we think of transcendence as well because there's a need for transcendence to be, to be brought back to earth you know, to pluralism, to our bodies, to a way that we can experience transcendence actually in this very world that we live in and not just where God is or where the abstract is, and and so on. It started
2: to make our modern world seem like a pretty dull, suffocated place. I mean, Joanna, what's your take on
3: it? Yeah, I mean, trans, hang on, trans, let's go first of all, trans means beyond, Skandari means to climb. So let's sort of, if we think of where transcendent comes from, and this idea of sort of, you know, climbing beyond whatever is before us, and again, that just means you're trying to push at the limits, or push at, you know, at the, again, the sort of sublimin, actually, it comes from going up to the threshold with this idea of the lintel, actually, of a door, you know, you're kind of just trying to get up there. And I don't, I mean, again, you know, yes, there's lots of problems in the modern world, you know, of course. But I think that sort of desire, that kind of pushing at the limits of whatever it is, scientific knowledge, look at the extraordinary kind of, look at quantum physics. I mean, if that isn't in touch with, you know, the ineffable awe and terror, you know, completely sort of bonkers, you know, various really interesting ways. Look at, you know, robotics or AI consciousness, or all these kind of extraordinarily sort of pushing at the threshold of notions of mind or self kind of, Um, creations. I think with art, you know, all interesting art kind of pushes at the limits of whatever's acceptable in a society. Um, And it's really interesting, Mina's mentioned the, the kind of resistance, absolutely right, to Burke. You get someone like Mary Wollstonecraft who's, you know, writing in response to Burke's 1757 essay, and she says, look, this term's annoying because Burke's obsessed with, you know, men are sublime and women aren't, you know, they're just beautiful. But she then sort of reappropriates the sublime, and she's someone who's really pushing at the limits, of course, of what's acceptable. And because of her, actually, there is a kind of counterattack with um, Gothic feminist fiction, people like Anne Radcliffe, kind of taking this idea of awe and terror, in, you know, into the f- sort of fictional realm and saying, well, actually, we are going to sort of seize this. So I don't think, you know, I think there's always a kind of play of these cultures and you know, people doing sort of different things at different times and trying to sort of counteract you know, the sort of orthodoxy. I think once the sublime becomes generic, you take it from the individual and it has to be an individual experience. So, literally, if we're all told to go to one place and we'll feel sublimity, and there'd be a big queue, you know, and they'd <laughs> run out of sandwiches, you know, it'd be really rubbish. So that's not going to be sublime. You know, we, it, we, again, in our own selves, we have to kind of push at the threshold of that experience, you know, of all our experience to try and find that path that we're all trying to sort of find that's our own kind of driven path. I mean,
2: what about art now? Can you think of things that do still succeed in, you know, rising above this suffocation? You know, examples perhaps you can all draw from your own experiences of, of sublime in stuff that's being made and generated and put out there, not necessarily in particle physics, but in the world day to day. Is it invisible? Is it non-existent?
4: I thought it was interesting, in in the introduction you mentioned um, the WAP video and um, (laughs) for people who are not familiar with it, it's um, Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion have a video which is incredibly raunchy. You know, we see that I guess more as trashy than transcendent. And um, personally, I kind of agree, not that it's trashy, but I don't find it empowering from a feminist perspective. I think it's catering very much to the male gaze, even Mm -hmm. though it's also subverting it somehow. Um, But I do think that it's really important to to say that, I guess, for, for younger generations, my sense is that what. Older generations and, and like our an- ancestors thought of as the sublime. Today, for young people, is uh, maybe characterized more by things that are magical or epic or sensational. Um, and there's something about that video, for instance, that gets people talking. And it's there's something to analyze in it. Um, there's also this um, kind of resistance to the sublime, which has always been, you know, very classed. As I said, um, it's very. The sublime is a space which has uh, really constricted people's behavior um, and and been very normative and said, you know, this is how you're a a lady or whatever. And there's something in this this video that's saying that, no, we don't want to be socially acceptable. You know, this is something different. Um, And it's also kind of blurring the lines between pornography, I guess, and art which the kind of old fashioned school would say, oh no, you can't do that. But I th- I, I just think that the people who are into that kind of art form, that art expression are also seeking something sublime. I,
2: I can't help but see a similarity there to, to to, to gospel music in the 18th and 19th century as a as a way of something very powerful and transcendent, tied to Christianity, and latterly after that, jazz. I mean, you know, the, the, these things really, it seems to me, have broken the, these levels, but, you know, I just wonder if you can have some, some more examples of, perhaps guide the way we can get back to it that, that are happening in our contemporary culture.
0: Oh, that's too... Beyond t- the wacky... I, I think it's uh, hopeless. I'm afraid I think the sublime is uh, completely dead. There's... There's a couple of amazing um, composers, Max Richter. If anyone's heard of him, wonderful composers that take you there. But I have to say, um, you know, we 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 were all asked actually to watch the WAP video, and we were asked also uh, to look at this art by a uh, Japanese uh, artist by um, Murakami. And <clears throat> I don't know if any of you have seen this WAP video. Actually, I watched it. I it was very interesting. I was thanking uh, whoever decided we should watch it because this is my first introduction to modern uh, culture. And, um, <laughs> and actually, I found myself singing sort of along. Uh, there are whores in the house, there's whores in the house. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a good song. And, and actually it's um i think if art is an expression of a culture it absolutely in fact both of them absolutely express our own culture i mean you know what are our obsessions sex and shopping murakami looked like he would um, designed a shower curtain for kids for tesco you know this is what we do in fact as for the the sort of um you know, you know the, the feminist angle I, I thought that was astonishing though my mother used to say to me um Women will always be more powerful men than men because we have what men want, our bodies. And I think that is the sort of message of this sort of um, reclaiming our sexuality um, video. But I have to say, the language was um, really shocking to me. You know, I want a gag. I want to feel pain, you know, you know, do all these things to me, please. And it was like, what is that about? And the trouble is it might be totally, totally clever, but the people who are watching it and getting aroused by it aren't, they might not be super clever. And, you know, and and women on the whole aren't super beautiful. Like, I hope all of you are going to be watching it when you go home tonight. It's really sexy. It works. but as for Sublime, uh, I, fear, I fear it is really, really uh, gone, dead and gone. Rupert, Minna, you know, perhaps you could square the idea
2: that it's dead. I mean, are we not going a bit too far if we say that the Sublime is dead in the
5: modern world? Are we really that stuffed? Well, I'm afraid I didn't do my homework. And, uh, <laughs> You've got a different kind of (laughs) pussy. Yes, I'm uh, afraid I haven't actually seen the WAP video yet. Uh, So I don't have an opinion about it. Well, I would say that we live in a very secularized culture. And anything to do with God or religion is usually filtered out of public life. It's simply, you can't, you know, no one ever goes to church or sings hymns or prays on television or anything. It's been privatized. Everything to do with religion has been privatized. And when they were doing the Downton Abbey series, somebody asked, why do not they ever show them saying grace before meals? Because at that time, they would have said grace before meals. The answer is because it might have offended atheists to have grace on television. So we we live in a a culture where secularism isn't just um, seen as a way of not favoring one religion over another, but the default position is non-religious or even anti-religious. So I think there's something about modern culture which is actually amputating uh, the the transcendent and the sublime. It can't be amputated from human nature, which is why it keeps coming up again in all these different forms. And I think in the modern world, the main way in which people experience it, a lot of young people experience it, is through a kind of psychedelic rite of passage, which I think for many people is an opening to this realm that our education and our culture tends to suppress. So I think that's one way. I think there are also various arts. I mean, I know this is a terribly niche minority interest choral even song in cathedrals um, <laughs> but uh, there are composers still writing exquisitely beautiful music sir john Tavener, for example which is performed in choral. it's not just 16th century polyphonic music uh, there's modern composers writing music which is designed to be elevating and, and and inspiring and actually is in many cases so it's not if it's gone away it's just that it's been marginalized and all or, or sort of put beneath the, the radar. Even though cathedrals are pretty large, hard to miss, lots of people have never been into them because it's simply not part of secular culture or education to think about these things. So I think we have had a kind of general suppression of the sublime in the name of so-called science and reason.
0: Oh, gosh, uh, do you mind if I say something? Please do. It's not. Oh, no, 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 but you remind me that story of the cathedral. Uh, you remind me of that, because about uh, 15 years ago, I was on a train with a young lad of 20, and I saw he was reading a philosophy book. And, of course, I had to talk to him. What was he reading? What was he doing, et cetera? This boy, this young man, was a decorator. He had left school at 16, because because school was completely boring, and he was going to see... Sainsbury Cathedral, Salisbury Cathedral, because it was the most beautiful building in the world, the most sublime building in the world. And he was going to listen to even song. So there he was, he was going to look at this building. He was was going to to listen to this music and he was reading a book on philosophy, but he, he left school at 16 because our education is so boring. Um, what was he doing? He should have been at university. He should have been, you know, thinking, being, but he was there on a train. What was he doing? It shows, you know, the sublime is dead if he has to do that.
4: Can <laughs> I just say every, that we're, very quickly, um, you know, we're at an, an ideas and arts festival and, obviously people here are interested in philosophy and these big I- big ideas but also i've been you know catching lots of very young artists who are performing amazing music like there's lots of jazz there's bulgarian indigenous music so i think we also need to just insert that the sublime is perhaps not entirely gone
3: <laughs> hasn't every culture has always sort of protested its own demise it's almost again it's like you know Uh, every culture announces its own senescence as well. So, you know, like the sort of commode argument, sense of an ending. And I agree with Minna, there's uh, there's fantastic work going on. There's, you know, Arthur Jaffer's exhibition was great, all sort of found objects and creating kind of beautiful art from sort of the randomness of life. Or uh, Dorothy Cross, she makes, you know, bathtubs, you know, she puts instead of the scum line, she puts kind of, you know, gold leaf into it. So you sort of transmute mortality into, I think it's great work going on. I could carry on. and But um, Mark asked me to talk about uh, civilizational damage well, and darkness too.
2: What are the dark forces at work here that make such intelligent people seem so gloomy
3: about this? Well, I think, okay, there's one. I was interested in Sublime as the unfathomable, the incomplete, And I think there is a sort of civilizational damage that is going on. So lots of the art I know about, I find out from the internet, so it's wonderful in many ways. But there's also this sort of binary culture that's going on, which is the culture of the sort of bit, you know, this sort of basic, you know, kind of binary digit, the most basic unit of computing. And bear with me, but this is either zero or one. Everything is one thing or the other. And it means that when you go in these kind of decision tree worlds, you have these formulated choices for you, this or that. And it completes everything for you. And I think this entire culture of friend, unfriend, like, dislike, everything is sort of decided for you. You can only have one or the other. And maybe if we're going to reclaim the sublime, it's going to exist in the sort of, again, going beyond all of that, this sort of, civilizational damage, I think, that's coming through as part of our own culture. Maybe your, you know, your man on the train is absolutely right to kind of go off to Salisbury Cathedral instead (laughs) Uh, and, you know, switch off his phone or um, whatever it is. Well, what I'd love to say uh, to Minna, just about
0: jazz, because I've been noticing this, that I listen to music with different parts of my body. And there's a lot of music nowadays that you listen, you know, with a lower stomach. It's kind of sexy, like, you know, Carly B was really sexy. And then you have your heart, and you listen to a sort of lovely sort of trio, Haydn, sort of gentle thing or whatever. And then you have higher still, and that's where you listen to Sir John Tavener, higher still. You listen to it, and they're all valid and lovely ways of listening to music. And I love jazz, and I don't want to do jazz down at all. I'm just saying you don't feel awe. You don't feel (gasps) like that. I love jazz so I'm not doing down lots of songs and you know but I just don't think uh, jazz is, um, is sublime.
2: The opening bars to So What by Miles Davis, I, I, I call that sublime. <laughs> <laughs> but but
0: I, mean, I want to come back to push you further
2: on this. I mean where is this suffocation, this supposed suffocation coming from? Is it capitalism? Is it, is it greed? Is it, is it just fear? I mean I'll be running away from things that scare us these days and if so why? What's going on?
4: Capitalism certainly plays a big role. I mean, you know, it's very difficult to hold the sublime and capitalist culture together where, you know, to Joanna's point, um, I think we're seeing so much uh, art being produced based on algorithmic value. So, you know, something is getting a lot of likes and suddenly it's an album or a movie or a book. <laughs> um, and that really mitigates how much uh, sublimity we can experience. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think that capitalism is part of the civilization. Uh, I'd, I'd say quite a lot, but I'd Lots love to say one more thing. Um, one more thing, just because my
0: son spent some summers uh, going to Ghana teaching maths there. Rural Ghana in the middle of nowhere. And he said in that first phone call when he rang home, he said, um, Oh my goodness, I have witnessed human happiness for the first time. It's really odd watching these people going up the streets, doing this, doing that. And they're all smiling and they're all full of joy. Now these people live in mud huts. Few of them wear shoes. There's just enough space for lying down under the roof when they go to sleep. And I said, why, why are they so happy? They also have this awful diet of plantain, tasteless vegetable, they eat nothing else. And I said, why do you think they're happy? And my son said, well, the thing is that um, for three hours, every night under this incredibly black starry sky, they sing, they sing these incredible songs. And I said, what are they singing about? And he said, they are praising God. And I was thinking very sadly, you know, our modern missionaries, okay, bad, you know, old missionaries got a very bad name, but our modern missionaries will say, what are you saying? God is dead. What matters is our sexuality. What matters is going shopping. What matters is
3: desire. Uh, you know, we've just lost the plot. But you can have, um, you can have the sublime, you can have the sublime without God. Religion is,
0: man-made but the response that original response of those people 200,000 years ago to what they saw that wow was real and they were responding to something was which was real in the same way as mathematicians respond to numbers which are real. They were responding to spirit or something. But I I think think we're
3: all responding to something real. We're all having a real life. And, you know, so that, I mean, this, again, and these, you could say if you believe in the Eastern tradition that all the sort of, you know, the cultural aspects are kind of Maya to some extent. And there's just this experience of, you know, trying to fathom, The universe from your individual perspective, in conjunction with other people who are trying to do the same thing, and I think that's sublime, and that's what art, you know, literature, philosophy, experience, conversation—that's interesting—is about. And I don't see that you have to, you know, say, well, there's any particular sorts of art that do that well. I mean, uh, different people will find different forms of art. Lots of people will find the WAP video sublime. Fine, you know, if that's how you get to it, fine. You You don't have to. I mean, even songs, lovely, but you know, some people might find that less exciting. You know. So I I just think, again, if we have these, you know, throughout history, the whole of the culture industry has been controlled by a tiny quantity of very, very rich people with funny ideas about things. And we all kind of live in the aftermath. And, you know, this debate, the sublime debates, generated really by lots of aristocrats going on holiday in Europe and going, darling, the mountains were sublime. And sort of elevating their gap gap year, really. I mean, that's really what was going on. And so now we're all here, you know, 250 years later. You know, but why don't we just forge our own version of these things, kind of reclaim them, and actually operate as ourselves, living these lives? And if art is exciting and speaks to us and great, if it doesn't, then you just ignore it. You know, I mean that. I, yeah, that's why. There is a
2: pattern emerging here. The tiny individual with its personal experience can and the universe. And it seems to me, then, we've got a robust definition of the sublime now. Anything that makes us connect to something vastly bigger than ourselves. Is that how you began,
5: Rupert, as I recall? I mean, why should that be? I don't know. I think that the, the, something about um, our nature is bound up with everything else. We're linked to everything else. We're not separated individuals in, uh, you know, we, we have obviously separate bodies, but we're part of a social system. We totally depend on other people. We depend on nature, the sun, the earth. It's just simply a fact. Um, and if we uh, acknowledge that, that there's this connection and dependence, then I think we're, as it were, going with the flow of, of reality and going with the flow induces happiness and a sense of connection. Most positive psychology research shows that people feel happy when they're in the flow, and it can be the flow of singing or dancing or helping others or work they're really absorbed in um, or music. Or, um, but being part of a, something greater than oneself is usually what makes people happy. Being separated, alienated, detached, isolated is what makes people depressed on the whole. I an mean, acid- you're an expert an an on isolate. depression. You, I mean, you're. D- d- would you agree with that as a That's general
2: like I, I can't deny that, certainly. Mm. But I'm fascinated by this idea that capitalism, you seem to be saying, separates us
5: from each other. That seems to be what's going on here,
2: or se- makes us selfish in
5: the modern world. Well, I don't think capitalism say. is the basic problem. I mean, I'm not pro-capitalist okay. myself, but the, the, if you look at the communist regime in the Soviet Union, that wasn't necessarily brilliant on the sublime and uh, so there we've got a a communist system and if you look at capitalism in the 19th century england when it was in a particularly raw and aggressive and and uncaring form it was not particularly associated with a debasement of public taste and there were some spectacular buildings um, and some wonderful uh, public buildings and So I don't think it's capitalism per se, nor do I think it's that the socialism or communism is necessarily better, nor even national socialism. I mean, the Nazis had another take, and they built monumental buildings, but mostly ones that were an expression of power. Um, I think it's this uh, the the I, I think it's basically the attempt to abolish religion and uh, and a pro uh, sort of atheistic secularist culture and many atheists would uh, are secular humanists and actually have a kind of uh, altruistic morality it's not, so I it don't think it's to do with morality either I think it's to do with a belief system that says the sublime or the transcendent simply doesn't exist The universe is nothing but mindless matter, um, purposeless. Evolution has no purpose. Uh, sublime experiences, theories of thing experiences, of the divine, are nothing but changes inside our heads, inside our brains. Um, and there's no more to it than that. And to imagine there's more to it than that is just to succumb to an illusion that's believed in by ignorant, stupid, and childish people. I mean, that's a very common attitude. And our educational system tends to implicitly I to um, that. favor that attitude. Yes. I well, look, we, I think we can get on for quite a
2: long time with this, but uh, I think the most important thing now is just to, to thank our, our speakers this afternoon.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.